Now, uh, funny that some of the themes that are threaded through there are probably echoed in, in our first item today. The appetite for Margaret Atwood's sequel to The Handmaid's Tale was such that her book launch in London on September 10th was live streamed to over 1,000 cinemas around the world. And The Testaments uh, continues the story of the world of Gilead. Now, I, I think a quick primer is probably necessary for those of you who, who don't uh, know about Gilead. Gilead is essentially a dystopian vision of the near future. So most of the USA has been taken over and is being run by... I suppose what you would describe as a totalitarian regime and they're kind of fundamentalist Christians. Uh, The world has been contaminated by pollution. And then the handmaids, these are fertile young women who are basically forced to have children for members of the elite where, where the wives of the members of the elite cannot do so. So the first book was published in 1985 and the sequel is just out now. But all these years later, you'd have to say, and this was helped along by a recent fantastic television adaptation, the, 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 the story of, of Gilead continues to be a huge cultural phenomenon and maybe now more than ever. So I'm delighted that this morning, sitting in front of me, is Margaret Atwood. Good morning, Margaret. Good morning to you. And Margaret, can I start by congratulating you on the Booker win? And of course, you ha- you've won the Booker before, but you shared it this time with Bernardine Evaristo. And I saw the two of you um, out and about talking and everything. You seem quite pleased to be sharing it. Absolutely. You seem quite tickled. Yeah. Yes, well, at my age, you know, it would be a bit, at my age and stage, it would be a bit embarrassing to hog the whole thing wouldn't it? <laughs> okay, okay. So you're happy to shine a, a little bit of light on, on Bernadine. You oh, I were, think she's got her own light. I mean, she's also yeah. shining a bit on me, so yeah, it's a yeah, mutual yeah. shining. You were a great double act, actually. Yeah, yeah we both have curly hair. <laughs> and, uh, of course, you're no stranger to the book, or the, you're, and your very first nomination was for The Handmaid's Tale. It was. You? No, I w- I've been very experienced at not winning the booker. <laughs> <laughs> I was already with my not winning the Booker act. Yeah, is that? Do you put on a, a, a rictus grin and of happiness uh, no, for whoever won? No, I just won? think it's funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I mean, you might as well enjoy the the moment, whatever it may be. Yeah, but you and you have won the Booker in the past. I have. Well, yeah. 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 Um, in terms of the Handmaid's Tale, so you started to write the book. You were in West Berlin around 1984, but you were traveling around Eastern Bloc countries. I did. At, I, at, I visited um, East Germany. Very closed up tight. Um, I visited Czechoslovakia, almost equally tight, but not quite as tight. And then I visited Poland, which was fairly uh, comparatively loose at that time. And it was predicted by Richard Kapuczynski that it would be in Poland where the cracks in the Iron Curtain would appear first, and he was correct Mm -hmm. in that. And the reason for that was that there was an opposition in Poland and it was too big uh, for the party to kill everybody. And that would have been the Catholic Church in Poland at that time, who were pretty ferocious looking. I saw them doing a, a march in Warsaw and I thought, whoa, these people look <laughs> extremely frowny. Okay, um, so okay. they were not at all pleased um, with the regime, which had just killed a priest when I was visiting. Okay, so, so they got away with everything, but when you kill a priest, you cross the line. Well, I think they'd been, the you know, they'd crack. been killing this and that person <clears throat> over time, and it was sort of building up. But the 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 Polish people were open enough so that uh, a taxi driver would not want to be paid in zlotys. That person would want dollars. And when we visited the Writers' Union, which was, of course, a government-run institution, they said, 
would you like some samizdat? In other words, prohibited literature. And we said, sure. They said, wait here a minute, because they were keeping it right there. So you thought, okay, this is, um, um, the regime is possibly in some trouble. But it, it did come down, the actual wall came down in, in um, Germany first, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the physical wall. Uh, was there in terms of what you witnessed there culturally I guess mm. that's got to have fed into some of the, the yes, handmaids. I, I've seen you say before for example that people didn't want to talk they're afraid that, to talk ex openly. exactly they were afraid to talk so um, and, and you would have been too so East Germany no hope uh, Czechoslovakia they would talk to you if you went out into a field and Poland they were quite happy to talk to you and but you had to be careful what you repeated afterwards about who had said what, uh, because that could get them in trouble. Okay, and the, and so that that the genesis of where we get people going around saying under his eye, and we have oh, been sent good weather. Oh, there's and, lots and, of other precedents other than the other than the Cold War. Mm -hmm. um, so go, Iran go back as in well time. Was, some, was somewhere. That you, was you in were. 1978. We visited. Uh, Iran, we visited Afghanistan six weeks before Daoud was shot. So Daoud getting assassinated was what kicked off that whole chain of events that we are still living with. Um, so we didn't um, know that was coming, needless mm -hmm. to say. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know that the Shah would go down eight months after we had been in Iran. And so, did, so don't invite me to your country. <laughs> 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 well, listen, maybe you could shake this place off a bit Oh, as I think well, it's, it seems to be quite shaken. No, we're, we're, sh we're shaken, we're shaken, it has to be said. Um, so, so it's funny, right, because obviously the whole Handmaid's Tale has come and the whole culture of Gilead has come to be regarded now as when we think of it, we think of fundamentalist Christianity. But well, actually it has me, a lot in common with, are not, yeah, with, not real with Islam no. as well. Well, fund fundamentalist regimes all have something in common mm -hmm. with one another, and uh, fundamentalist religious regimes all have something in common with one another in that if you are in opposition, you're not only a traitor, you're a heretic. Um, so you get, you get double bad. Um, it's very interesting to go back and read the trial of Joan of Arc and, and see what they were trying to pin on her, <laughs> you know, what they finally got her for. Wearing men's trousers, a punishable offense. Okay. Yeah, pretty horrific story. And, of course, you, you are always very careful to say that you do not write science fiction, you write speculative fiction, because everything that you write, there is a precedent there. You, yes. you, collect, you collected a lot of stories, didn't you? you Absolutely. Cuttings. Yes. Tell me yes. about that. Uh, well, I was just clipping. In those days, you clipped them out of newspapers and magazines and... These days you can also download them. So what was the reason for paying such picky attention to details? I didn't want anybody saying, you, you really have a dark, deep, twisted imagination making all this stuff up. So my news to you is it wasn't me who made it up. It was people. And uh, this was people doing things to other people. It wasn't the mice. It was people. So that is the extreme bad side of what we're capable of, but we also have an extreme good side over on the other, over on the other end. We're we're a mixed bag. 
Yes, people are complicated, aren't they? And no, and the, the, the people in 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 Gilead are complicated as well, really, aren't they? Yes, because they have complicated choices to make. Sometimes very simple choices, life or death. Uh, which one? <laughs> yeah. But then, uh, if you start down a path, if you start down one path, that's going to lead you to other choices, which are complicated. So we live in a society in which choices do not become quite that extreme most of the time. And certainly for politicians, you don't get shot in the back of the head, you get diselected, which um, I think is better, don't you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and for all of us, really, it's easy to think that we would be good people in those situations. We would love you- to think that. You do so what you need to do. I have met some of those good people. I've, I'm old enough to have known people who were in various resistance movements uh, during the war. And um, they took big risks. They were, they were quite frequently young, quite young. So, so young that they did not yet have families. And uh, I think young people are more idealistic and also more risk-taking than, than um, older people with... Uh, lots of other, say, young children or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that's why a couple of the people in the Testaments are quite young, one of the reasons. Okay, because there there is less at stake for them. In, well, they in would be sense, more I likely guess. to do it. Yeah, so yeah. And we I guess watch um, Extinction Rebellion. A lot of the people in that are pretty young. And they have inspired older people to join them, but it was started by really quite young people. And of course, you were uh, you were before your time, really, in terms of conservation. And your late husband was a conservationist, and you've always been very, very green. Are you su- a supporter now of Absolutely. Extinction Rebellion? Yes, I'm a supporter of them because they are numerous enough now to move the political needle. And something that I saw in an English newspaper today was miracle of miracles: the conservative government has just banned fracking. So they didn't do that out of nowhere. They were reading the tea leaves. Do you think we're finally coming to a point where we're going to take all this seriously? Well, we have to because if we if we kill the oceans, we will stop breathing. That is in one sentence the short story. How long do you think we have? Oh, <laughs> the time keeps getting shorter. You know. Um, I will leave that to the experts, but if you want the latest, you go to a website called Project Drawdown. So they have all the things that we're doing now that if we did the more would lead to a reversal of the carbon in the atmosphere. Uh, So we're also constantly inventing new technologies. And we were just told the other day that if we did wind farms on all of the continental shelves, that would generate enough electricity for everything. We wouldn't need to do carbon energy at all anymore. So, and, and that some of the technology that oil companies now use can be used to build these wind farms. So if I were the oil companies, that's what I would be investing in. Yeah, pivot in there. And but so it's it's good to hear that you're hopeful. I saw you say in, in, a, in an interview recently, I think, that you feel that climate change um, is going to further erode the, the rights of women. I'm not the only person who thinks so. So climate crisis, droughts, fires, floods, um, etc., lower food production. 
lower food production, food shortages, food shortages, social unrest, social unrest wars. Wars are always bad for women and and, uh, children. In terms of the producing a sequel now after after all these years you obviously resisted it for over three decades was there something about the way the world is going now that made you think it was time to return to Gilead that it was relevant again how did you guess (laughs) (laughs) yes I thought a sequel would mean continuing in the voice of Offred which I couldn't have done Um, but I also felt for, for, for a while we were moving away from Gilead so the Cold War ends, we're told, end of history, everything's going to be fine now, we'll just all go shopping. Mm-hmm. And that's what people did in the 90s. Then along comes the Twin Towers, that was pretty scary, shifts the world balance. Uh, then we have the financial meltdown, and that made a lot of people very anxious and scared because they were losing their houses, they were losing their jobs, they were uh, in in turmoil and... and uh, frightened and angry. And when you have frightened and angry people, they're very open to Mr. Fix-It or Ms. <laughs> or Ms. Fix-It. And they also become more conservative. They're, they're willing to give up rights in exchange for stability. And that's when your totalitarianisms come in. And, and you have said that there are Gilead-like symptoms going on in the U.S., for example. I'm so not you, the only person. <laughs> so. It has been mentioned. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, well, these people were talking like that in the 80s when I wrote the first <coughs> Handmaid's Tale. Uh, and and then they sort of went underground and, and worked away building their apparatuses. And then they and then with the Trump election, they achieved power, and that is what they are doing. So um, that is their goal. And um, probably you won't get Gilead with the outfits but you will certainly get the rollback of the rights of women because that's what those kinds of regimes do. And let me say at this moment that I don't think Gilead is real Christians Uh, because if you put it the core of Christianity, love your neighbor, these are not neighbor lovers. (laughs) They Mm -hmm. don't really Mm -hmm. love their neighbor very much at all. So, so do you think that is the U.S. on a path? And and I mean, you you do, do... there's a, one theme in the book is about how these things are all a continuum. They're that in play, with, yes. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, the U.S. is also, uh, some portions of it are very dedicated to the idea of um, open society and liberal democracy, and they're they are, uh, fighting quite hard to keep Gilead from arriving. So... Uh, so there's that side to it as well, and and in the long game, I'm betting on them, uh, because we have a lot of young people coming along, uh, who are not uh, going to buy into a Gilead type of arrangement. That's my belief. I could be quite wrong. So uh, always hope. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> what is life without it? Pretty dismal. And uh, yeah, Alfred says at one point, I think it's Alfred, he says in The Handmaid's Tale, we lived by ignoring in a gradually heating bathtub, you'd be boiled to death before you knew it. It's true. Do, you, do you think the bathtub is heating up around the world though? Uh, definitely heating in some places, but in other places, little points of light shine out, such as Ireland. Ireland is mm-hmm. really quite different from the Ireland of maybe 30 years ago. Um, so, so it is an example of... Um, 
the fact that things can change, and they can change quite radically. So you, I know you are no stranger to Ireland, and you've visited here, and you, you do follow what's going on here and keep in I, touch, do I you? I do follow what's going on and keep in touch. In fact, I lived in West Cork when I was um, correcting the galleys to Alias Grace, which has just been made into a very good uh, six-part miniseries um, starring some Irish people. Uh, so, yes, I do. And um, I just had an earful yesterday at the College Historical Society. I got brought up to date on Irish politics and okay. had things explained to me. <laughs> and you see, you have in a way become this kind of... Uh, almost a figure of authority, moral authority, that people look to for the answers yeah, that's, to everything. That, that's kind of bad news. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a terrible it's, pressure to well, be Margaret yeah, it's, Atwood it's a now. high bar, you know, I have to behave yeah. myself more than I otherwise would. Yeah. Tell me in practical terms, what, sh- what, what is it we should be doing if, we, if we're seeing these signs and everything and we feel that this, this path that we're going okay, down... Okay, so what? there is... Um, there's one thing that people should really be paying attention to, and that is the the very large gap between people on the bottom end and people on the top end. And you cannot continue going down that path forever uh, without having a French Revolution type of explosion. Those are not fun. So I think all governments should be reconsidering um, wealth redistribution. Uh, we were told quite a lot about the trickle-down effect under the Reagans in the Reagan years. The trickle-down effect doesn't seem to work very well, but there's <laughs> there's also a trickle-up effect of mm-hmm. misery <laughs> that seems to be working more. So if, if, the, if the bottom 80% of society gets too annoyed, um, it's not going to be fun for the other ones. They think they can go off and... Uh, and uh, live on a tropical isle, but that that means they haven't been following the news of what's been happening to tropical isles recently. Well, I believe New Zealand is the place of choice for the one percenters at the moment, isn't it, to um, to p- put their hideouts for Armageddon? Uh, well, that's not going to last forever either. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. If you build a silo and go inside it, you're going to have to make some choices about who's going to be in charge of the plumbing and air conditioning. Absolutely. And I, you know what? I gather one of the things that they, they, they have these symposiums for the 1% to discuss how they will Do live they? after Armageddon. And Do one they? of the dilemmas they discuss is when cash is no longer acceptable mm. as a store of value, mm-hmm. how do you ensure the loyalty of the people you have around you doing your plumbing, You want the short answer? Yeah. You don't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ed has texted in. I, we've kind of covered this, and I and I think you you think possibly we are, but but there's hope. Could you please ask Margaret Atwood if we are witnessing the slow death of liberal democracy in the West? We're witnessing an attempt to kill it, which is not quite the same as the slow death. But there's an excellent book by Madeleine Albright called Fascism: A Morning, in which she lays out all the signs and symptoms. Um, so we should pay attention to that, but but we don't have just two choices. It's not a choice between um, totalitarianism over here and unbridled capitalism greed over there. There there are other ways of arranging society, and we should really start thinking about them. 
and it Gilead, I suppose, is 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 generally totalitarianism. But oh, it's there totally is all, totalitarian. But, but there, the, I suppose specifically, it's about the subjugation of 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 women is how how we see a lot of. Well, it, that's isn't because it? it's told from that point of view, mm-hmm. but it subjugates men too, just so you don't feel left out. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yes. Because it, it's, it it's not easy for us either, Margaret. It's a pyramid. You know. yeah, yeah, it's a pyramid. So those at the top, including uh, men and high status women. Um, have more stuff than those at the bottom, including low-status women and low-status men who live in something called econo-families where (laughs) women have to do everything, Um, everything that is divided into castes higher up. But but all you have to do is look at uh, hierarchical regimes through the ages, and that has generally been the case. So even under supposedly communism uh, in, in Russia, the people up at the top got more stuff, both women and men, than those mm-hmm. at the bottom, both women and men. Mm-hmm. And the, I guess one of the more nuanced things about it, which, you know, sometimes I think people can take The Handmaid's Tale as a very simple kind of tract with simple messages. No. The women participate in the subjugation of other women as well, don't they? And you're no always kidding. very yes. clear about that. Women are are not all angels and men are not all bad guys. And men are not all angels or bad <laughs> guys. <laughs> people are people. And it's, as I said, it's a mixed bag. Uh, and if you look at how those regimes have operated, and if you look also at colonial regimes, uh, the colonializing power always raised a controlling force from amongst those who were being colonialized. Uh, that's what you do. Why? It's cheaper. Um, and anyway, yeah. they're, they're more likely to be able to infiltrate and spy because they don't stand out. So, so of course, they would raise a uh, women's cadre as those regimes have done in the past. You, you wrote a very interesting essay, um, I think last year, Am I a Bad Feminist?, yeah, and, and and I think that you you said it, it was thoughts like that that all, all women are not angels and all men are not bad, that made you to some people a bad feminist, neither acceptable to left or right. Well, well, tough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now it's always the people in the middle that get the most potatoes thrown at them because they're getting it from both sides. So, um, I'm, I'm simply telling the truth. You know, people mm-hmm. are mixed. And as for feminism, there's 75 different kinds, uh, several of which are at war with several of the others. So what kind am I? I'm the kind that's interested in changing the legal structure, as Ireland just did. Um, so if you change the legal structure, what is permitted, what is not permitted by law for, for women and girls, you may not change people's attitudes right away. But you, but those attitudes will gradually uh, change over time. So, I work with a group called Equality Now, which is focused on that changing the structures, uh, changing the legal structures in countries around the world, laws having to do with girls and women, and that's what was happening in the seventies when. In North America, women were fighting for the right for married women to have their own bank accounts, can you imagine, uh, to have mortgages um, of their own, to, in, in effect, have a financial life. So it wasn't all reproduction rights. It was mm-hmm. also having an independent financial life. I'm a 
big advocate of separate bank accounts. Um, saves so much argument. Um, so, <laughs> You're running away yeah. money, of course. Well, you need to have that. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, of course, my parents grew up in the Depression and they were very focused on you need to have an independent financial, you need to be able to support yourself. And um, therefore, I had my first bank account when I was eight. So I'm quite a Scroogey person, really. Uh, are you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> really? You never know <laughs> when times will turn tough. Okay, so you um, still have that kind of notion that you need to have a few quid in the bank. I'm, that... I'm a string saver. What can I say? Uh, right. We never threw out anything in the, in the 40s. And what's your indulgence now? My indulgence? Um... I think that would be telling, wouldn't it? So tell. Yeah, I'm not going to. Okay. Uh, because you, your upbringing was quite, um, it was different in a way. So you, you, you kind of, you were a, a child of the post-World War II. Uh, no, I was during World during War II. During World War II. Yeah, I'm older. I'm really old. Which did, left a kind of a certain, you picked First up a certain all, bleakness, you think? Well, I think, I think things were pretty gloomy <laughs> during my um, early childhood, you, there was just—I don't mean in my family, but there was a general atmosphere of, of gloom, um, and we could get, in the winter, we could get get radio broadcasts that went. This is the BBC calling North America. Oh, it's the BBC news. <laughs> so fresh news, news of fresh disasters. Yeah. Oh, yeah, anyway, there you go. I, I can remember VE Day. Quite clearly, I was five. Um, so, yes, interest in totalitarianisms, um, not wasting anything, growing your own vegetables. We always did that. And you kind of, there was an idyllic sense to your upbringing as well because you kind of, you would decamp for a part of the year and live out Most in the wild. Most of the year. Most yeah, of so the year. Winters in cities and... The rest of the time we were up in the in the woods, Canada's really big. So the woods were not just a stroll in the local shrubbery. Uh, it was very easy to get lost up there. So certain survival skills were um, taught quite early. <laughs> okay, so it's made you quite a pragmatic, tough survivor. Very pragmatic, yes. Fix your own motorboat. Um, you can't do that anymore because it's digital. And have you enjoyed then the the um, the television aspect of the Handmaid's Tale? This whole rebirth of it. Lucky and me. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit they fun. did it really well. They, and they absolutely can did. go the other way quite easily because mm-hmm. uh, you have no control, so you don't know whose hands it's going to end up in. But this ha- ended up in the hands of a guy called Bruce Miller, who decided when he was nineteen that when he grew up, this is what he wanted to do. And he waited and waited and waited until they were looking for a showrunner, and he talked himself into it. Uh, so he is dedicated to it, and and so is Elizabeth Moss, who is also a producer on the show. And I would say everybody in it is, it's it's not just a show to them, including the designer, whose name is Anne Crabtree. So the the costumes that have become so iconic, she actually did look at Fifty Shades of Red before mm-hmm. picking the right one. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you acted in it, of course? You I had acted. a little cameo. That was fun. I, no, I did not slip, slap Elizabeth Moss in the face, as people sometimes say, back of the head. And we had to do it four times because I was not doing it forcefully enough. 
and they added that sound effect. But it is an odd, it's an odd sensation to have your leading lady turn around and say to you, hit me harder. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll hurt you. No, no, come on, give me a wallet. No. <laughs> and then, of course, huge success at the Emmys and everything. And you've, yes, did wasn't you enjoy that exciting? All the, all, oh, that was lots of fun. into the glitzy yeah, life. Yeah, that was really lots of fun. And the, they were so thrilled. It was touching. They were wildly thrilled. I, I did see, I, I was watching an old South Bank show recently and you were very withering about, you were saying, look, if I want to write a tract, I will write a tract and I will bring it around door to door and hand exactly. it out as people do with Poster. tracts. Yeah. Yes, yeah. billboard. Yeah. So I wondered then, is there a sense in which then the way The Handmaid's Tale has become such a phenomenon and things from it have become cultural kind of tropes and memes and signifiers and everything. I do get a lot of photos of people's cats and dogs in those veterinary yeah, really. collars with yeah. a K padded. <laughs> so have you enjoyed that, that, that really it's out of your control now? You know, and it's gone you out might there. as well enjoy it because yeah. it is out of your control. So you can either get very annoyed with it and make your life miserable or, or you can enjoy it. So... This is a participatory phenomenon. People people make all kinds of artifacts. Um, I have a beautiful petty point embroidery that has got bunnies and ducks on it and, and some writing that says F asterisk CK Aunt Lydia. Beautiful <laughs> embroidery. And they, they, they're very inventive about the things that they will make. And I, I think there are people writing military histories of Gilead even as I speak and leave them to it because... I'm not going to do that. Okay, okay so let them. <laughs> so they're filling in the picture. Fill out the story. Yeah, yeah. they're having yeah. a really quite a, an amazing time, and and um, there are certain books with which that happens. If you see a picture of Scrooge in a Christmas ad, um, even Scrooge says, etc. Charles Dickens didn't intend that, but but it's happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there, the, the I was reading as well that you were involved in the um, in the coffee shop poetry scene in Toronto in the Very early, early 60s. Yes. But, and you know, the funny thing is that if there is one person who is, you're held in very high regard here in Ireland, right? If there's a, if there's a man who is held in similar regard as a kind of a, a, a people feel he's a moral force and a thoroughly decent human being, it, it was Leonard Cohen who was yeah, very was, beloved was, here, another yeah, Canadian. Yeah, he was a good guy. Yeah. Uh, so did generous. you know him around yes, that time? Yes, I did. But he was older than me. But every... Um, um, undergraduate girl in the, at, at that time would have his book of poetry. He, he started as a poet first, and he only started the singing to make pocket money. Uh, he started singing country and western in bars. And then it segued into the fact that he could, he could be a singer-songwriter. But he was known as a poet first. And and the, that poetry scene was that would have been the Greenwich Village of Canada essentially. Yes. Oh, it, not even. <laughs> You're talking about something really small, okay, and and local. But uh, what it meant was the poets generally knew one another because there were so few of them. So a little bit like Ireland, in which every Irish writer seems to know seemed to, at that time, know every other Irish writer because it was quite a small mm -hmm. uh, group of people. So generally below the radar of the general populace in Canada, unlike Ireland, where writers are held in high esteem. Uh, but at that time, writers in Canada weren't. In fact, it was so blank, people would say, what? They wouldn't say, you can't do that because you're a girl. They would say, what? 
<laughs> but what's your real job? Yeah. Um, so so we did know one another, and uh, he and um, a poet called Irving Leighton were generally representative of the Montreal uh, poets of that time. But there was a group of them older than than me, but uh, well known to to us because, as I've said, everybody knew everybody, and the older ones tended to help the younger ones at that time. So, so in Canada, if if people read books, you all banded together, basically. You, yeah. you read books as well? We <laughs> well, it was poetry. People yeah. did read books, but the books came from elsewhere. So real books came from England, France, the United States, second-rate books that you sneered at were from Canada. Okay, okay. Another uh, interesting little kind of sideline you have is... You're very interested in palmistry. You often read people's palms. Is that a request? I'll do it. Are, after. You, are you offering? I'll do it after the show. Well, I would have to be sitting beside you, and as it is, we're sitting across the table from each other. Can I go over? No, you can't. I don't think you've got time. It takes a while, you know. <laughs> Could you do a quickie? I'll do a quickie. Okay. Yeah. Here he comes. He's trailing a wire. Yeah. He's trailing his wire. <laughs> He's making his way okay, around the table. Can, yeah, I think yeah, you're going to come unplugged. No. Okay, so here we go. We're going to put your hand, hand right you here. Are you right or left-handed? I'm right-handed. Okay, I need both. Okay. Okay, so this is the... These, these are your hands. This is your right hand. This is your left hand. This is the hand you were dealt, your left hand. This is the hand you played, your right hand. Think of it as a game of cards. Okay. Uh, so I can tell you right now... Oh, that you. Okay, you you missed being the great dictator. You had those <laughs> inclinations, but you've suppressed them. <laughs> Lucky for the world. Um, you have a very interesting. Um, all right, so your your hands are quite different. So you okay. have you have changed the hand that you were dealt by how you have played it. Uh, you, uh, you have increased your inclination to pay attention to hunches and, uh, and inklings, which isn't so much there in your left hand, but it really is there in your right hand. So you're a, you're a person who picks up on, um, I won't call them psychic events, but you, you are attuned to uh, currents that are not rational. So because this hand goes okay. right down, this is the moon over here in your hand. So astrology and and palmistry were very connected in the Renaissance. This is um, this is your pointy finger. It's your Jupiter finger. Your next finger is your Saturn figure finger. This is your Apollo finger. And here are the novels that you or poems or something that you or possibly paintings. Here are your artistic inclinations on this finger. And this is your Mercury finger. You're not demonstrating extreme wealth on on this hand, but you, no. but you have some latent um, money on this hand. On the other hand, which you haven't gone for. <laughs> it's because of all those artistic inclinations. So are there artistic inclinations? Yeah, great. There so are. so yeah. Margaret Atwood, you're telling me that I I'm tempted to be a great dictator, and uh, if you, I was, I would be been. I would be a highly irrational one. 
I'm so afraid I would so. Have been so the, the world, danger the world to the has warrant. been been spared, and if only Hitler had been led into art school, everything would have been different. <laughs> <laughs> Margaret Atwood, thank you so much. And I know you're giving a talk tonight in the National Concert Hall as part of its Words and Ideas series, and the event is, I understand, sold out. But I hope you enjoy it. And thank you so much for coming into us today. And of course, your new book is The Testaments, and it's published by Chateau and Windus. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you.